Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. Welcome everybody to the newly transitioned Cashflow to Freedom to AJ Osborne podcast. So I got to keep saying that a couple times in these first episodes as they're coming out. But as we were rolling out the new brand and the new podcast, it was really important to me to get people on here that um, I really admire and respect um, that will help represent kind of my name as I'm really taking this on as more as a personal podcast now and still being keeping quality and bringing that to the podcast uh, for all of you guys, all our listeners. And uh, today I have with me one of the people that I just could not think more of and respect so much in the investing world. Um, She is an absolute leader, I believe, in the space, Uh, helped me as I was transitioning through one set of strategy kind of to another and led me to have great success with her advice. Um, She's one of the people that I call up when I need it. And that is Ashley Wilson. And she also uh, did a co-author and organized and created the book, The Only Woman in the Room, which we're going to talk about. If you follow me on social media, you uh, have seen it. But with that said, Ashley, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, as always, you know, I'm excited to have you. I could sit and talk with you for hours. Um, so you just, it's its interesting when working, um, you know, after we first met and uh, we talked for a long time. I remember we were in Hawaii and we, we were in that restaurant that we'd walk to and we sat down and... Um, I've been in my business for a long time, I guess long, 15 years, right? Um, And I owned a lot of different businesses and everything, but you really were talking to me about a lot of stuff that opened up my eyes in ways that I think I could have grown my business and done a lot better. And it showed me the expertise you had in a few things. And first of all, Um, not just structuring the deals and not thinking about how you work with investors and everything, but your operations. And you just know every single piece of your business and everything. And I was just so impressed by that. And, you know, after after we talked and I'd called you up, whatever it was, six months ago, and like, I'm not sure how to do this. And I was completely doing it wrong, wrong for me, at least. You told me to go a different direction. I went that way. And it's been awesome. We've gotten tons of deals under contract. We're exploding. And that's our new model for growth. Um, And I just think that that advice is is so valuable and you have so much of it to share. So really sincerely, thanks for coming on. um, And congratulations on your best-selling book, The Only Woman in the Room. Thank you so much. Yeah. Now, how long has this book been out for? We've got to ask just about the book real quick, and then we're going to get on to kind of what it is exactly that you do, but (laughs) yeah, absolutely. So the book has been out since the end of September. So about four months plus or minus now, um, it's done very, very well. Thanks to you, of course. Um, so as much as AJ is really selling what I do and how I've helped your, uh, self storage business and your other businesses as well. Um, really AJ has helped me as much, if not more, not only with my businesses, but also so with the success of the only woman in the room. So thank you as well for helping us with that. Always. Well, it's it's a phenomenal book that was it needed to be written. It's a space that we find um I was kind of actually shocked there just wasn't a lot of literature um on this and you you brought some people in the industry in certain niches and things that they'd done um and it was uh, it was just a great book and um why don't you tell tell them a little bit about the book and why why did you uh why did you create this book Approximately three years ago, I was at Dave Van Horn's Mid-Atlantic Summit, which is in Philadelphia. It's an annual conference he holds. And the co-founders of Invest Her, the real estate investor, Andressa Gadelli and Liz Faircloth asked all the women in the room to have lunch together. At this conference, there were 450 attendees. So with just two tables and 16 women, we sat and had lunch together. And while everyone was getting to know each other, I was just 
literally dumbfounded at the fact that only 16 women were sitting at this table. So on the drive home, my husband and I were talking about it. And I said, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be called the only woman in the room. I don't know how it's going to look, but I know that it will chronicle women in real estate. So the next year I was very intentional about interviewing women without them realizing what I was doing to understand their backstory. And it didn't matter to me um, whether they were seasoned investors or uh, new investors. It was more important to me what their story was and how they got into real estate, why they got into real estate and what they were planning to use real estate as a vehicle for. So once I really understood a lot of different women's stories. I picked 19 women that I wanted to co-author. And as you mentioned, AJ, they are people in self-storage, they're in multifamily, they're in uh, residential assisted living, flipping, wholesaling. I mean, really they run the gambit of real estate investing and they're at all different points of their journey. So it was important to me that anyone who picked up the book, it didn't have to be a woman, but anyone who picked up the book could relate to at least one person in the book. I love it. It's just awesome. Awesome. And that's been out since the summer, right? It was the summer? Since September, yeah. September, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yep. was, it was warmer when it was out. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I know it's done uh, really good. And it's, you know, it's a great book. But, you know, besides this book, and, and we're talking about the reason why um, I think it's great that you wrote it, obviously, for all these reasons, but give a little background into what you do in real estate. Like, you know, talk to us about your your niche or just your focus, I guess is a better way to say it. Um, and what is your approach? So I started in real estate before I realized I started in real estate because I started with house hacking, which a lot of people, I think, find real estate through that method. Um, then we did short-term rentals. And when I say we, I'm speaking about me and my husband. Uh, we did short-term rentals, long-term rentals with single rental here and there type of deal. Um, eventually I partnered with my father, who is a general contractor on a flipping business. We flip high-end homes in the suburbs of Philadelphia. We've had that business for seven years and about a month or two. And um, most recently in the past three years, my husband and I started in large multifamily syndication. Um, so we have uh, 600 units across uh, the US primarily in Texas and um, Ohio. 600 units. Well, it pales in comparison to what you have in self-storage. But, but these but are not it, storage it, doors. These are apartment <laughs> doors. That's a lot of units. It's, it is a lot of units. It's, um, it's, it's very enjoyable um, because they all teach you different lessons. Um, so I have... I've learned a lot in those three years. In fact, in the first year, I more about multifamily, more about any topic I've ever learned in life um, in one year um, than if you compare it to any other topic across five years. I mean, multifamily is uh, multifaceted. And I think a lot of people think that multifamily is very easy. It's simplistic. It's, you know, large multifamily is something that you can just execute on a very high level basis. You can do that. But to me, the, um, the increased value is found in the details. So I think there's compression in the cap rate of, uh, the multifamily space right now. And I think the, you know, the winners and losers, as everyone likes to talk about, I think the winners are going to be the ones who ultimately know all of the details, because that's, that is the group of people that can squeeze the most juice out of that lemon. So are you really looking at a value add strategy when you're approaching these, or are you buying more stabilized, consistent, um, cash flow generating assets? What is your kind of individual approach when you're looking at a large multifamily deal? That's a great question. And really the answer comes down to our cost of capital. Our current cost of capital only lends itself to go after the value add. Uh, so in terms of cost of capital, I always like to say the cost of capital translates to your purchasing power. And right now our purchasing power is limited in the sense that we target value add deals because value add deals 
our high risk, high reward, and our investors want a higher reward. So we target currently the um, value add deals. When someone gets, like anything in real estate, um, it all is about leverage and scalability. So the when you first um, get started in large multifamily, you are at, at such a huge disadvantage. Um, and the the further you progress in multifamily, the easier it becomes because you have this ability to scale leverage capital at a lower cost, which as I mentioned before, translates to your purchasing power. So then all of a sudden your purchasing power becomes greater. Um, you leverage vendors in terms of cost. You can negotiate down pretty significantly. You can negotiate lending rates. So your lending terms are more favorable with a better track record. So all of those things combined really exponentially help you. What what our ultimate goal is, is obviously to increase our purchasing power. And the way we are going about doing that is through continued experience in the value-add space. And then coupled with, uh, we're actually looking into developments for this year, um, along with tapping into lower cost of capital. And lower cost of capital is found through uh, family offices, institutional, private money lenders. Those are the types of people who look for a seasoned track record. But once you can tap into those markets, then obviously uh, you're at such a great advantage for purchasing those cash flowing assets as opposed to just value add. Now, now, talk to me more about when you're talking about this this cost of capital from family offices and everything. Are you talking about the debt portion or the equity portion that you're raising? The equity. Sometimes family offices will be open to providing the debt as well. They, because lending rates are so favorable right now, it's very hard to compete with the debt side. Pre-COVID, obviously, there, there was... Um, a smaller spread on the debt versus the equity. So you could get a situation where the uh, family office would provide both the debt and the equity. But right now uh, we're talking more so just on the equity side, because I mean, you know, if you're looking at the lending rates at like 3% sub three, um, in some cases I've known people to buy large multifamily at 2.7. I mean, that's just, how how do you really compete with that? So, um, the lending rates right now, especially with institutional lending firms like Fannie and Freddie, they're just, I mean, they're very hard to beat. Now, if you're talking more on like a, um, CMBS or bridge loans, those have that they have such, uh, there's so much volatility in that market, um, that it can go up to 6% currently. Um, so even above 6%, depending on the market and the situation, the property and the, um, the operator's experience. Um, but ultimately that is closer, you know, to, what a family office might want. So then a family office could cover the debt and the equity. Okay. Now you're, you're looking at multifamily. Obviously we're talking about uh, your cost, your money, your debt structure and everything, but you mentioned something right at the first where you're looking kind of at the value add, um, explain value add on the multifamily to me. What are you looking for in that asset that tells you, hey, there's opportunity to improve this? Hey, we could improve the cash flows. What are those things that you're identifying in multifamily as a value add? Most people, when they think of the word value add, they're thinking of distressed in the sense that the property has deferred maintenance and there's room on rent growth. What they don't realize is that value add is really just a distressed property and distressed applies to both the condition of the property as well as the operations. So you can have a property that doesn't have distressed units um, by an aesthetic value, but because of operations, I looked at a property one time where they were on no um, public website. So for example, like an apartments.com, they weren't listed there and their website looks like something I created in fourth grade kind of thing. (laughs) You know, it was just, it was horrific. And the pictures were from like, you know, a flip phone. Um, So 
that is that is still a value add situation because the marketing of that property that, that's a good indicator that the general operations and it's not only on attracting certain type of tenants to the property but it's the way in which you can operate the property so in certain regions you can do um a chargeback on certain expenses. And this varies by market. So if you're looking in a specific market, make sure that you know, and this is, this is a prime example of knowing the details. Can you operate a multifamily without knowing this and not charging the utility rubbacks and still get a value add, you know, by raising rents? Yes. But are you able to increase the value exponentially when you are charging back, you know, the water usage, the electricity, the sewer, the trash those are those are additional low hanging fruit you can also too get um you could charge an amenity fee you can charge a trash valet fee you can charge parking you can um do master service agreements where you do agreements with specific vendors and you get a price per door um and then you get a profit sharing model now if you're saying and you're listening to this and saying i already have a contract you know i just acquired a property and I inherited the contract that came along with it, try to renegotiate. I've tried to renegotiate every single one of the contracts that I've inherited and I've been able to renegotiate on all of them. So, you know, there is a lot of opportunity that if you really look into the general operations, maybe the expenses are too high, like on vacant units. You know, if you're seeing your electricity extremely high and your maintenance team doesn't know to turn off the lights, uh, on these vacant units, you could be running up the bills. So there's a lot of ways that you can find value. How much of these are you doing? You talked about kind of some of these pass-throughs when you're looking at a multifamily, uh, the industry as a whole, how common is it for renters, um, to receive pass-throughs? And do you have pushback on any of these items when you're trying to, you know, implement them or is it, something that is fairly standard. I can't speak to all markets because I only invest in certain markets and the markets in which I invest in, it's all permissible to do the pass through. Um, and because it's permissible, it is, it's commonplace. I mean, in the sense that tenants know that they'll be receiving these bills on their, their rent. So it's not something that they typically push back on because it's very it's very, very common in, in the markets. Um, so we haven't had any issues with, um, billbacks on any of these items. Well, let's talk about that for a minute then. Uh, um, you mentioned your, uh, the markets you're kind of in, why do you pick, why'd you pick those markets? Like what drew you to those markets? Because I also noticed, right. You don't live. In fact, you live far away from some of them. So what made you decide to go to those markets? A few reasons. So I always say there's no bad market. You can invest in any market. It really just depends on how your investing strategy, how your approach is. And I know you're the same way. You can always figure out how to execute in a market. And that's what I really love about watching watching you execute with self-storage is you can really make money in any market. And the same goes for multifamily. There are reasons which I pick our markets um, and it's based on indicators that I believe are aligned with where I personally want to invest because the number one investor on all of my, all of these investments, and I don't mean number one is like most important, but the first person to invest in any of these investments is myself. I always put my own capital in. So if I do not want to put my own capital in on an investment, then that's not a market that I want to go into. So things that are very important to me are, for example, the business friendliness of an area. Is this going to be harder to go into this market or easier? For right now, I'm going into markets that it's easier to do business. Um, and that could be by way of uh, policies. It could be, um, you know, the municipality working together with you, um, taxes. I mean, there's a lot of different indicators that signify uh, business friendly. And then also another important uh, indicator for me is um, 
an area that is landlord friendly. It's a lot easier to have confidence in your numbers when you know that you can evict someone and they are out the door within 30 days. You know, like for example, within Texas, whereas in Philadelphia, I mean, I could have someone for over a year that I've been trying to evict. I know with the eviction moratorium that that situation gets a little bit more complicated. But even with the eviction moratorium, there are just blanket agreements across Pennsylvania that you can't evict, where in Texas, there are there are nuances to that. It doesn't, everyone doesn't fall into the same bucket. Um, so there, that's another indicator. And then the most important indicator for me, and I probably should have started for this, is I look for recession-resistant cities. So I'm looking for cities that have historically performed well during the last recession, and there's ways in which I calculate that and analyze the markets. And then I'm also looking for markets that have diverse economies. I think diverse economies correlate highly with recession resistance. Okay. This is, you know, this is such an interesting topic. I think it in today's world for a few reasons, you know, obviously COVID and what's happening, but two, the migration that we're seeing in the United States is astronomical. Um, you know, we look heavily at these patterns. And as you said, we're looking at um, states that are easier to do business. And that's that's especially important when you're developing, right? If you're developing, that's a whole new can of worms that you got you to gotta open up and you got to look at. Um, when you're looking at these the performances over time in these markets and how they perform, what is your focus on? You look at occupancies. Are you looking at you know in multifamily? Um, how do you judge that uh, performance? Like how do you look and say how would I know? Right? If I'm looking at a market, how do I know how these assets have done over a given time? So it's interesting because you can look at it at that granular level, but I have found a correlation between unemployment and the occupancy. So in some markets, it obviously varies. Um, you know, so an inner city, let's say, has a 95% occupancy and the surrounding uh, submarkets you know, historically have had a little bit less, like let's say 92%, but today it's the opposite. You know, people yeah. are flooding the inner cities. So you can't really use that anymore as an indicator, but I never use that as an indicator. I always used unemployment. So I look at unemployment within a specific region. And then I look at, so I look at a few different things re with regards to unemployment. I look at pre-recession unemployment rates, the height of unemployment within that specific submarket. Um, the rebound. So once it gets back to pre-recession rates, and then I look at the duration. So I'm looking at how long did that market take to restabilize? To me, that's a huge indicator on the strength of the market. So um, to your to your point, when you're talking about um, migration, I think that California right now is shooting themselves in the foot. I feel like um, they are going to put themselves in such a predicament that it will be very difficult to uh, rebound because ultimately they haven't been business friendly. They're very tax burdened. And I think what's going to happen is that they're going to do too little too late. And I've seen this on a micro level in different cities um, in Pennsylvania. And what ends, what ultimately ends up happening is um, the smart municipalities realize that investors bring money with them because they ultimately are beautifying an area. They're providing great housing for people. And in turn, that creates a higher tax basis. So what they do is you don't charge people high taxes up front because you want to attract people to your market and you get them on the back end instead of preventing them from coming in the front door because the tax basis is so high. And that's what California is doing. The tax basis is way too high. People are going to other markets. And ultimately what will end up happening is so many people will flood the market. They will have no other option but to lower their tax bases. Whereas in these other markets that I'm seeing at a micro level, they, they did it the slow play way. And those markets are now thriving. And all of those other markets that were booming before are I mean, just ultimately failing. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of these states. So historically, and this is probably getting more, more in the trenches than you probably wanted for, for your question, no, no, but just to kind of, 
kind of speak to this. Historically, when you look at a landlord-friendly state, it's synonymous with um, being a red state. So it's a great cheat sheet if you're looking for a landlord-friendly state. If it's a historically voting Republican state, it's landlord-friendly. If it's a blue state, it's tenant-friendly. Well, what happens when all of these people from blue states that are heavily taxed migrate to red states? I think that we're going to see a huge swing in Texas and I, I, people are doubting me on this. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong. You know, it's not like I'm betting on this, but I don't think it is out of the question that in the next election, Texas might vote blue. I mean, think about it. It's attracting all of these, um, you know, more liberal people to the market. Right. Mm -hmm. And it obviously depends on gerrymandering and all the division lines and everything, but there is definitely a risk for the next election, if not the further election, you know, the subsequent election. So why does that matter? It doesn't matter because I'm not, I'm not political. I'm not trying to make a political statement. It matters because what is the domino effect of that? The domino effect of that is that it then can ultimately transfer to being more tenant friendly. So then all of a sudden you have these investors who have historically been in an area because it was landlord friendly, now look elsewhere. And that's why we continue to have these market shifts and, and changes. And that's why you always if you're a real estate investor, if you're not following market cycles, migration, trends, patterns, correlations, I mean, that's that to me is the best way to invest is to know all of those indicators. I couldn't obviously agree more on that point. I look at it and there's only so much I can do. At the end of the day, the market is going to make you or break you. I cannot fight a failing population. I cannot fight bad economics in an area because I have no control over those things. So I have to go into markets where the economic winds are going to take my boat to, you know, where I want it to go. It's going to push us in the right direction. And then I have to make sure that I run that ship in the best possible way so we don't crash. And um, there's just, we look at markets where we're going, oh, we can have uh, you know, we can have a, a great buy in this market. And you're like, yeah, but this market is shrinking. So it's going to be a great buy five years from now, no matter what I do. Um, and we see this a lot in different states. And a lot of our success has become come from simply aligning ourselves in the right migration patterns, in the right areas where we understand what the cities are doing to attract businesses, to attract people. And that growth then in turn results in higher population growth, higher income growth, higher standard of living, all those things. And it corresponds then in the property. We have increased rates. We can put more capital expenditures into those properties. The property becomes more valuable. It attracts more capital, which makes the cap rate compression more. And you're just a windfall of it. And I know a lot of people that have, you know, you'd say lucky, but it's really they were in the right place at the right time. Right. And they were in a good location and they've made tons and tons and tons of money over the long term just from being in the right place at the right time. The inverse is also true. I know people that because what it's like a failing market is is, you know, it's a downward cycle because then all of a sudden you can't sell it because nobody wants to buy it. Right. And it it just kind of goes you look at cities like Cincinnati or Detroit and we see what happens and you know for it's a lesson to be learned in history detroit at one time was the city in america yep. it was it and all those people that put hundreds of millions of dollars in one lifetime it was not only evaporated it was like i mean just beyond gone it was negative there's nobody wants it you can't touch those this happened in not even a lifetime, right? This happened in my father's lifetime. He's, we're still working. We're still investing. Um, and it's a reminder to people that at some point, you can't just depend on yourself. And if you can make a few, if you can do a few things right in real estate, the rest won't matter nearly as much, right? And that's one of those things, though, that I think you're, you're spot on. And if you get it wrong, it doesn't matter what you do. 
Mm-hmm. You can't fight against it. Um, that's a huge philosophy for us moving forward because we think that these trends will be exasperated due to online mobility, working from home, everything that we've seen in 2021. And we've seen it in these markets. Um, markets around the it's we view the United States as a tale of two cities right now. There are some markets in the United States that are exploding. Life is incredibly good. And then you see other markets and it is just, I mean, unemployment is just sky high and people are doing it for us here in, you know, the Treasure Valley, the Boise, Idaho, or the other markets we're in talking to somebody in LA, you would think that we are from two different countries. They are just nothing the same. And they, it's, this is not something I think is changing quickly and our investing strategy reflects it just like yours does. So I, I think everyone needs to watch out for this. They need to be aware of it. That's macro and micro, right? So we see this also in se- certain sections of the city. Certain sections of the city may be trending down towards. They're getting lower rents. They're having higher crime, right? Different things like that where other parts of the city are up and coming. People are moving there. Businesses are starting there. They're bringing more jobs. And you can just be in a position where in five years, you're consistently getting rate increases. And that's adding millions of dollars to your portfolio um, just by being there. So I think, and I'm sure you've seen that within your investments in your portfolio. Because Texas has been crazy. (laughs) Texas is booming. Booming. Um, There's certain sub-markets that are, I wouldn't say doing as well, but overall, you know, it's still, it's still pretty strong. Um, But, you know, to your point and uh, something that I think my mother-in-law, who's not in real estate said perfectly, and I always quote her on this is it's not important who your buyer is. It's important who your buyer's buyer is. And if your buyer has a lot of buyers when they go to sell, then you will attract more buyers inherently. And that's kind of um, how I look at investing is I really am not saying to myself, okay, is this a market that's going to be good? You know, with multifamily, it's typically a three to five year hold, plus or minus, Mm -hmm. whatever. But like, it's not like I'm looking, okay, three to five years out, where do I think this market's going to be? I have to look 10 years out because- I mean, case in point, that's why I don't buy on the southern coast of Florida. Is the southern coast of Florida going to be there in 10 years? I mean, is it? And if it's there, will it be insurable? Yeah. And if it's insurable, is it going to kill the deal for someone to get a return? You know, these are things that, you know, we're dealing with changes in weather, you know, there's all different nuances and it's impossible to know everything to your point, but there's enough data out there that you can make educated guesses. Yeah. And simple, literally just surveying, walking around asking people, why'd you move here? Right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed how much that I learn from people when you say, why'd you move here? You get the craziest answers. It's always, you know, the, the usual, you know, right. It's friendly and, you know, lower taxes, all that kind of stuff. But then two, you get people that, like, to your point, and say, you have water here. I'm like, what? And they're like, yep. you have water. I got a $250 fine because I watered my grass. And they're like, I'm out. And so it's even, you're right. There's things that you don't see and you don't know. But we have cities, too, and places where all those things are correlating at the same time. And you need to watch out for that. I think it's it's a fantastic play, and you do need to be looking 15, 20 years in the future. So this idea, you know, perfect example, like you said, in Texas, one area that we're very nervous about Texas is Austin. Austin, we don't think that Austin is on the right trajectory. We think that Austin is going to become a mini L.A. in 20 years. They already have um, unemployment high. They have a lot of homeless population that's moving in there. They're seeing higher taxes and makes sense because the vast majority of everyone that's moving to Austin's from L.A. So 20 years, this, this may not be a problem at all in the next five years, right? In fact, we don't think it will be. But if you're thinking 20 years out, that changes the frame in how you're looking at those things. So, But if you... Go ahead. Yeah. And just to go off of that. So Austin, you know, we have Tesla, we have Amazon coming there. There's a lot of different big name companies that are entering the Austin market. So t- 
to what we're talking about, you know, looking at changing the political landscape, changing the tax basis. Okay. That's Austin. That's, yeah. it's not really a micro example, but it kind of is when you yeah. look at all of Texas, because yes. Texas is massive, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then you go to San Antonio. San Antonio is the affordable Austin, right? So yep. that's what people like to say, more hip and trend, you know, like Austin's very hip and trendy, but like, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a different kind of hip and trendy in San Antonio, right? And now all of a sudden the people who can't afford to live in Austin are living in San Antonio. Now all of a sudden San Antonio's changed. Now San Antonio's reached its capacity. You have the pressure with uh, DFW market, you know, yep. and you have all that compression there. And that's how I see it kind of like, I hate to say this because of what we're going through with COVID, but it's kind of like, it's like almost how, like how a virus spreads. It yes. starts in one. And I'm not trying to say it's a virus and people are going to like say, Ashley, like, what are you talking about with this? But ultimately that's kind of how it works. It just yes. kind of, people will go, people want to live where they want to live, but they have, they can only live where they can afford. Yes. So if they want to live cl- in close proximity to Austin and get the benefits of, you know, Austin being the number one city right now, but can't afford it, they're going to look at these outer surrounding markets. And ultimately that's how the migration happens. So I am watching that. Um, I think Austin is crazy hot, but I also, I thought DFW market was overpriced and has been overpriced for a very long time. And it still keeps going up. Um, I think when we look at you know, those types of markets and the economy, you say to yourself, okay, that is from a, um, you know, that's a small subset of what's going on nationally. If you look at what's going on nationally, we have a problem where, I don't know if it's a problem or not, it depends on how you look at it, but there is really no one, I think, who's really paying attention to all the foreign capital that's coming into the market and investing. And I think what ends up happening is because the foreign capital is coming in and their expectations of returns are a lot less than ours, eventually what will end up happening is further compression of the cap rate to the point where really there's no upside on the appreciation uh, you know, that we're getting the natural appreciation. Perhaps we still have the force, but there's no natural appreciation that's going on anymore. And it's just going to be about cash flow. Yeah. Eventually, I think that's what's going to happen. If you look at Cal- um, Canada, they had this problem like within BC market yep. and they had these ghost towns. So they had to start charging these heavy taxes for foreign capital to come in and invest. And because Canada is you know, the markets are on a smaller scale and people can see the effects so much greater than what's going on in the U.S. I'm just wondering how much cognition someone has in a a position of importance that can put some um, safeguards in place um, to, to protect the overall investment opportunities that we have today. Because I don't think we're going to be having these, you know, we're talking about I mean, self-storage is the highest return in um, asset classes. If you look at uh, REITs, like if you look at REITs, self-storage historically has been the highest by far, kills it. But all of a sudden you introduce all this foreign capital. We have the compression. It's already happening. And I I tell people, if you look at the REITs, they are getting these historical returns because when they were starting, when we were starting, I was buying 10, 12 caps. Well, if I bought it, 12 cap 12 years ago today at a five cap, my returns are incredible, but I'm not buying that today and getting that in 12 years. So there, there's already not only a compression in cap rates, but it's a compression in overall length of returns, right? So your returns over the long term, the next 15 years will not be like the last 15 years in storage. It won't exist. Um, And that's a great that's a great thing to be looking at and how that exit strategy is going to work. So you talked about development. Why are you moving into development? I have always wanted to develop. I have, I have this crazy feeling or uh, belief that if you look at the most successful uh, investors, like if you look at the top, uh, top list, uh, uh, top real estate investors, um, there's a list I looked at a few years back and had like the top 10 real estate investors and nine of them were developers. So, um, I think that 
my trajectory so far has positioned me well to transition into development from what I've done, my backgrounds, um, where I'm coming from. I think, I think it's a, it's a very achievable, uh, next step for me to do. And it also attracts me in the sense that, um, I think I can be very creative on the cost to build, um, that perhaps is not, being explored as much. Yeah, you so kind that's of have a something, background with that. Yeah. So I think that is an opportunity um that, you know, I could uh hopefully be able to exploit. You know, you you're supposed to play on your strengths. And I think I definitely have those inherent strengths that uh builders have. So I think it's a good progression for for me to to go to next. Okay, so now you're moving over to this. Talk to me, though, about 2021. What do you expect? 2020 was crazy. What do you expect performance and what do you think is going to happen in your area? What's going to happen in multifamily? What are you projecting at and what are your next moves? With multifamily, it is very interesting because I think it all all comes down to this eviction moratorium. I think it is the straw that will either break the camel's back or the straw that, I I don't know, feeds the camel, whatever the opposite of that saying is. (laughs) Um, But um, so so looking at it right now, you know, we're we're at uh, the end of March for the current eviction moratorium. Here's here's the problem with the eviction moratorium currently. Um, first and foremost is you don't have people applying with the CDC declaration until the 11th hour. So, for example, people like us are filing evictions because you still have to file an eviction. It doesn't mean that you can evict someone, but the eviction still needs to be filed on time. There's a whole process. So, so you have to file have- it, but you may not be able to evict them. You get the writ, but then you cannot evict the person. So what happens is um, you file, you have late fees, you have penalties, you have all these things. But um, the problem is, is that you can't actually evict the people. So that's inclusive of, by the way, and is not limited to people who can't pay. It is inclusive of if you have someone who's a uh, peeping Tom on your property and you need to get them out. This also applies. So it is not, yes, it is not a... um, one size fits all approach, uh, or it is a one size fits all approach. And that's part of the problem of it. But in addition to that, on our properties, you know, all of this is my perspective. So, you know, take it for what you will. Um, we have a challenge because we call our tenants once a week. We call to check on their welfare, whether or not they have paid their rent or not. We call and check on our ten- tenants once a week because we want to make sure that they're well, you know, they're especially with COVID, you know, someone's checking on them. But we also, too, if they um, are recently unemployed, we help them file for unemployment and we also help them fill out the CDC declaration and, and get the process started. The problem is, is that I would say very confidently that 90% of the people who do not pay their rent refuse to answer our calls, refuse to respond to our letters, refuse to do our emails, et cetera. And what ends up happening is we go to eviction court because you have to go through the process. If they haven't filled out these forms, you have to pay to file an eviction. And then the judge gives them the opportunity to still file these CDC declaration forms in which we have to eat these costs, you know, whatever. So it's a very, it's a very costly process on something that's already hitting our operations. And I am not someone who is cold hearted and says, you know, someone's come on tough times and not try to work with them. We try to set up payment plans and this is well in advance. Like as soon as we know someone's late, we contact them and say, let's just show a good faith deposit. We'll waive the late fees. We'll waive all the penalties. We're just trying to come up with some sort of plan to help you until this situation recovers. The problem is our mortgage is still due. Our utilities are still due. Our contract services are still due. Everything, our expenses have yet to change. So if you look at the industry, my mom used to say this um, in 2008. She said that 
Banks are not in the business of owning real estate. Yeah. Today, these Fannie and Freddie and the bridge lenders, they're not in the business of owning multifamily. They're in the business of lending on multifamily. It would be impossible for them to foreclose on all of these delinquent properties. So, so what happens, right? In 2008, a lot of people thought that someone would be foreclosed on if they had recently closed on their house and then they had lost their job, right? Because the bank could take over the property, very, very uh, low loss, right? Because, you know, the debt hadn't built up. Maybe they were on interest, whatever their term is, they don't have a lot of built up debt, right? Yes. Um, They haven't paid down. They don't have a lot of equity built up in the property. What happened was the opposite. So I was listening to this one economist and he had said, and I can't remember his name. I should remember his name since I'm quoting him, but he had said that what happened in that situation is banks actually targeted the properties with the most amount of equity in them because they could actually make a profit to balance out the debt that they would end up having on their balance sheet. So my thought process seeing that, um, you know, as a precursor, I guess, to this situation here, you know, on the residential side, if there was any lesson to be learned there, then you could, you know, mirror that and take that on the commercial side. So the question becomes, when all of these properties um, come up, are they going to be, you know, sold at the courthouse steps? Are the lenders going to take them all back? Are they going to go after properties that have a lot of built-in equity? I would guess based off of past performance, that is the answer. So I think that a lot of people, if they're smart about it, that are in this situation will try to get ahead and get out, Um, you know, because the compression in the cap rate is still there. The the properties are trading like crazy. And I've been getting, I mean, I at least get five properties a day right now. I mean, the, 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 the onslaught of properties coming out right now is insane. Really? And they're all, yes. And they are all, January is always a big month for multifamily, uh, for properties to come out. But more so than my experience, this has been the most amount of properties I've seen in January come out and now February. So I would just say that I think that there are properties going to come up, especially if this eviction moratorium continues. I don't suspect that March is going to be the end of the eviction moratorium. I think it's going to definitely go on for at least another month, if not longer than that. California extended it to, I think, June. That doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Honestly, it doesn't. Um, I don't know if it'll go that long. Um, I don't know if it'll be left up to the state at some point. Um, but I just think that, uh, there is going to be some opportunities to be had for sure for people who are ready to move and talk about a great time. I mean, if anything with GameStop showing people like, should you really be, you know, Uh investing in the stock market or investing in real estate? I mean, that helps, that helps us with the argument to invest in real estate. So if we can get some good opportunities, I think there's some room for some new investors to come into the market as well. I love it. I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, I, there's so much <laughs> I could talk to you about and uh, pick your brain at because you just understand this stuff so well. Um, you recently got a deal done down in Texas when we were um, together in Seattle. Um, tell us a little bit about that deal if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a unique situation. It was a deal we had under contract pre-COVID. And um, I knew what was going on with COVID. And with my background, I used to be in clinical research and development for vaccines. Um, So I actually worked for GlaxoSmithKline, who was one of two companies that manufactured the last pandemic vaccine in the US. So it was very very familiar with our the process, how long the vaccine would take, um, how it would impact us, you know, uh, 
nationally. I don't know how the economy, like the whole economy factor, I think was a little bit new to me. Um, but in terms of the feasibility of being able to execute due diligence and on the lender side for them to get third party reports, um, that feasibility would be challenging. So I went to the broker who the brokerage is a national brokerage, one of the largest uh, brokerages in the country. And I said, you know, I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you here, but we can't, we're not going to be able to, you know, do this. And long story short is, um, I was the first one to tell them that. And then all the deals started falling out. So we put the deal on hold. We put it under contract, um, later in the summer, ended up getting it. It's a broken condo situation, but there's only two condos and then everything else are apartments. A lot of people shy away from broken condo situations because they're, there's a, they're a little hairy. You got to really know what you're doing on that, um, situation to own the majority of the HOA, which clearly we do. Um, it's 153 units total. One serves as leasing office. And then there are two, um, um, uh, condos, as I mentioned, and then we have 150 that we can rent. So that's in the Galleria of Houston, which is a major commercial area, the Galleria Mall. Um, and it is predominantly a singles area. So the majority of the people that live in the area, it's like 63.1% of that market, it lives alone. Um, they're young professionals. And that is the top 99th percentile of the U.S. So there is not another market with a uh, more single yeah. population. So the the unit the unit um, type lends itself well to that. We have 122 one bedrooms out of oh, wow. 150 units, which normally you want a more balanced mix. But in this situation, you know, it lends itself to it. the market exactly. So we closed on that September 16th. Um, and, um, you know, the Houston market has struggled a bit, especially because, uh, you know, one thing for us is we had a lot of um, people living in the property that were on work visas. So with the ability to work from home, um, the work visas aren't being renewed. So people are having to leave the U.S. and then work from wherever they are from originally. So that has been a bit challenging. Hmm. That's interesting. I would have never thought about that with coronavirus. I didn't either. So huh. <laughs> it makes two of us. That's crazy. Well, you know. I could talk to you all day, but we've already been going for an hour. <laughs> so um, first of all, thank you so much for coming on and and talking about this. It's you know. You're going to have a lot of success. We're going to keep having you come on. But where can people find you and where can people find your uh, book, The Only Woman in the Room? You can find me on Instagram at badashinvestor and my website, badashinvestor.com, links right to the book. So you can purchase it there. Perfect. Well, I will actually be seeing you soon and we'll have a lot more to talk about here in a couple of weeks, but thank you for coming on. I know you weren't going to take on any more podcasts and you did this as a favor to me. <laughs> so I appreciate it and um, I'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. 